people would go and say, oh, as if you get, you know, I don't want to go and see a psychologist. Uh, it's a sign of weakness. I would sit there and go, well, I'm going to go see a psychologist so I can get the most out of myself. Mm. Like, I, the, how are you looking at that? Yeah. Same with, like, you know, it's a common thing with a business coach to go, oh, I don't want to see a business coach. My business isn't doing shit. Mate, coaching is all about taking you to the next level. Same as <laughs> with a rugby team. Mm. Know, the coaches are there not because you're shit. Yeah. <laughs> trying to make you better. <laughs> yeah. Like, that is a fucking perfect example. Every, like, the best rugby um, teams in the world have got a coach. Mate, you're tired you're listening to Trade Mutt's 120 Grit Podcast, the podcast for the working class, hosted by Dan Allen and Ed Ross, the co-founders of Trade Mutt. If you're a fan of Trade Mutt's 120 Grit, we'd love to hear what you think. Send us a message on Facebook or Instagram or shoot us an email at admin at trademutt.com. Well, we're back for another episode of Trade Mutt's 120 Grit, and this week we had the legendary... Former Australian rugby union player, Bo Robinson, who was in and out of professional rugby uh, four times throughout his career, incredibly. His story is possibly one of the most amazing examples of grit and resilience while staying focused on his goal to play as a professional athlete. His attitude around achieving his goals is likened to juicing a lemon. It's not about how big your lemon is. It's not about how much juice is in your lemon. It's about getting every last bit of juice out of the lemon and knowing that there is nothing left to squeeze. We dive into Bo's journey from growing up and falling in love with team sport to the challenges that he went through while trying to secure professional rugby playing contracts as a young bloke. He had his wins and he dealt with heartache, including the tragedy of losing his brother in a tragic accident, which he had to experience twice. This is an amazing podcast that we thoroughly enjoyed recording. You'll definitely get a lot out of this one. We certainly got a lot out of it recording. Um, one of the biggest takeaways was how he got the nickname Bins. <laughs> Enjoy. But first, here's a message about our legendary sponsors who make this podcast for the working class possible. Quote Spec is the newest building and construction quoting app created and designed by a working builder. Produce job-winning professional quotes in minutes with Quote Spec's cloud-based quoting software. Get your free trial at www.quotespec.com and be prepared to get your life back. Get it back. God, nearly knocked the... (laughs) (laughs) All right. The plant off. (laughs) (laughs) Nearly took the pallet off the wall. Good start to 2020. We have two very special guests in the room today. One is on Rossi's face. (laughs) And the other one... (laughs) The other one is... The actual special guest um, played in two Super Rugby finals, one for the Tars, one for the Reds. He came barnstorming on for 20 minutes for the Wallabies and he's now a leadership and culture coach, Mr. Bo Robinson. Welcome to the 120 Grit Studio, mate. Thanks, Jets. Excited to be on here. I think I've given my best material before we actually hit the record button. But anyway, we'll <laughs> it's perfect. See what we can do. Mate, no, it's been a great little uh, pre-chat, but uh, heaps to go through. You're actually one of the first people we reached out to when we first thought of this podcast idea, so it's great to have you in here. Mm. It's going to be very, uh, very good chat. Well, you've got a pretty good presence on LinkedIn. You put yourself out there. You really back yourself, and you're doing a lot of, um, yeah, as I said, leadership and uh, and culture coaching. Mm. And yeah, so uh, hopefully it's not an anti climax, eh? Nah, mate, never. <laughs> no, not on the 120 grit podcast. We need all the coaching we can get. <laughs> yeah, we might get something really good out of this. It's going to be great. You are. Uh, I've got to, I've got to go there. I just, I asked you before we started, have you got any nicknames? Because we, you know, we're having nickname people, and you had one that stuck out in particular, Binzy. Yep. How'd that come about, mate? 
Yeah, um, so I've got my name tattooed on my back and uh, on my first day of pre-season at the Waratahs, they're handing out the singlet, so I chuck a singlet on and um, the the singlet covers up the R-O at the front of my name and the R on the end, so when you're looking behind me, all you can see is the B-I-N-S <laughs> of the Robinson, so the nickname Bin just came about instantly, and really. stuck. Like every good nickname, <laughs> what a story. <laughs> <laughs> the Aussie culture, it's the best. Well, mate, uh, well, let's kick it off. You born in Alice Springs of all places. Yep. How was that? You probably don't remember. You left there when you were six to Dubbo. <laughs> no, well, it's okay. So I was born in Alice Springs, but we, I actually um, grew up on cattle stations up near Camelwell uh, in the Barkley Tableland. Which ones? Uh, Brunette Downs and Avon Downs. Been there. Have I been? worked at Lake Nash for oh, yeah, there three years. Go. Yep, yep. The old man always talking about Lake Nash. So, yeah, um, the old man's a bit of a legend up there. He's in the uh, Camelwell, um, you know, Drovers Hall of Fame. Amazing. Um, yeah, and, you know, Tennant Creek and all that. So I spent a lot of um, time up there going to all those social functions and whatnot as a little kid just running around as a little tucker. But, so, yeah, didn't actually uh, grow up in Alice Springs and then moved down to Dubbo when we were six years of age, yeah. Yeah, okay. What 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 took the family down to Dubbo? Um, my dad's old man had passed away a few years earlier and I think he just wanted to be closer to his mum and whatnot and... Um, yeah, uh, that was that was the main reason, sort of thing. It was an interesting move, even now. I still can't get out of him necessarily, you know, why he did and, you know, what was the real rationale behind that because it was a pretty big move, you know. I Massive. Think he lived, loved living up there, um, enjoyed the lifestyle mum did. So, but anyway, yeah. Please tell me is. you got a chance to get around the Dubbo Zoo at least. <laughs> what, who, me? <laughs> I've been around the Dubbo Zoo. Have you? Yeah, several times. <laughs> Push anyway, anyone, anyone doing the uh, the trip from Brisbane to Melbourne or vice versa, definitely pop over and get in there. Highly recommend. <laughs> <laughs> no money back guarantee. But. <laughs> the Dubbo oh, Zoo. Yeah. So sport was a big thing for you growing up? Yeah, so I was right into the horse riding. Love the horse riding. Obviously, when you grow up in the Territory on big big cattle stations, you know, that was my life. But um, when we moved down to Darby, um, I finally got exposed to team sports and instantly just took to the team sports, got into the soccer and the cricket, but particularly the soccer. Um, you know, something special for me about um, being able to, to share those emotions and the excitement with other people when you're trying to achieve the same goal. And um, I've never actually liked individual sports, never taken up any individual sport because I love that team aspect so much. I'd agree with that as well. Big team, man. Because you yeah. need to be carried. Because oh, I need to be carried. <laughs> yeah, I need everyone else to make me look good. <laughs> and also I, re- I need regular breathers. <laughs> Well, I was, I was reading on your, your LinkedIn uh, bio, mate, and you said uh, you like team sport because it required a large degree of, of selflessness and disregard for one's self-preservation um, for the team's benefit. That's um pretty amazing quote, as in, like, I sort of read it as in you were just happy to put your body on the line for those around you. Is that... Yeah, I think, you know... Obviously, there's soccer, um, which is still a team sport, but you're not so much worried about self-preservation. Like a human instinct, I believe, is to obviously preserve oneself and body and keep it intact. And um, you know, when when you start playing rugby in particular, you're you're asking blokes to to you know eliminate that thought and, and that um 
that natural instinct to, to look after their bodies in the pursuit of a team goal. So, you know, like a breakaway looking to get over the gain line and smash it up into an opposition um, player or players because so a bloody winger can score. <laughs> who gets all the bloody glory, like a bloody Rod Davies or someone big Yoni <laughs> getting all the glory from all the hard work that I've been doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that, you know, to create a great culture where people want to do that is something special. Is that something you learn at a young age? Um, no, probably more on reflection, I think, you know, about having an understanding about the great cultures and, and why they're so hard to achieve, you know. Like when you're an individual um, athlete, you've only got to worry about your own performance. Whereas if someone in your team is letting you down, they let the entire team down. So as I said, you've got soccer, but then rugby or those contact sports, rugby league, you're asking a lot more of a person. It's not just giving your best. It's about, listen, I want you to actually, you know, potentially get hurt physically, seriously, um, and then obviously the next level of that is the military where you're asking blokes there to put their lives on the risk, uh, on the line for the benefit of those around them. So, um, you know, the mentality around that where there's so much at stake, not only the game, but um, people's health, health or lives it is unbelievable. How do you get the most out of that with the teams and and getting individuals to buy into that culture and, and, and um, yeah. Yeah, wow. So when so when did you transition, I suppose, from, from the round ball game? Where 14, 14 I took up rugby, just got to the stage where, um, you know, you're going through puberty and there was an increase in testosterone levels. And <laughs> I wasn't going real well with the women, so that was the only way to release it was through contact sports. <laughs> It makes sense. I mean, you've made a fair go of it, so... Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, the face has not got any better. <laughs> I, I, I see you got a ring on your finger, so something must have worked. Happily married. She's a Polish girl, Polish, um, Polish girl who actually met at a yoga studio in Brisbane, actually. I was doing yoga. I'd been doing yoga for seven years, and it finally paid off. <laughs> I was only saying that this last week. week. Oh, yeah, last, last week. week. I, uh, my wife and I go to yoga Friday mornings, and I said, I'm the only bloke in there. And I'm like, all you single blokes have got rocks in your heads if you're not going down doing yoga. There are chicks everywhere and there's no blokes around. If there's one thing you take out of this podcast, get into yoga. <laughs> yeah, get yeah. into yoga or not, Pilates. Not for your mind, not for your body, but yeah. for the uh, for the women. For the possibilities. And it took seven years too. Seven so, years. And my hips never felt tighter. I worked that out. <laughs> so... Um, so obviously, yeah, the the passion for, for team sport and rugby in particular, you're 14, that was something that was your sort of main priority going through the senior school, I suppose, rugby? No, I was pretty, um, pretty focused on grades. I did pretty well in year 10, really um, enjoyed especially mathematics where I did very well at school um, in the statewide, uh, you know, tests and whatnot. Um, and but then come in year 11 and 12, I went away to boarding school and I just I'd probably just burnt myself out in year 10. Um, and yeah, didn't do so well, and thought, you know what, I don't want to have anything to do with my degree. Like I don't want to be, um, I, I want to get out and be practical. I want to get a trade sort of thing. I don't want to get a university degree, and um, so probably didn't give it as, or definitely didn't give it the uh, the attention that it deserved. So you'd made that decision in grade ten, was it? No, year ten, I had a great year. Year eleven, or you know, I went to Stenny's and and. Um, or Stanley's in Bathurst, St. Stanislaus College, and was was really excited to get there and and um, you know get stuck into 
to my uh, schooling and my exams and study and whatnot. But then I think I was just exposed to, um, you know, rugby from a different perspective that I hadn't seen before. I was like, wow, unbelievable. I love this game. You know, anyone that's been to an all-boys boarding school understands that it's just something unique about playing in the first 15 and in front of an entire school and having the school. And that just became my priority over the study. School doing the war cries and getting the uh, yeah exactly. getting the fields going yeah you know, which is something that I'm not proud of I'm, I'm disappointed that I didn't make the most of that opportunity um, and that's not a reflection of the school either like they did everything they wanted to but you can take a horse to water you can't make him drink are you saying that from a academic side or a sporting side academic academic side, side, yeah. sporting yeah. it was great yeah 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 so was that sort of when did you sort of sit back and and look at that and readjust your your focus did you do that into year 12 or when you finished school no when i'd finished school so even then you know i don't want to i don't want to do anything academically um, yeah. i've had enough of school i was bored sick of sitting in, in bloody um a, a classroom and um right i'm gonna well initially i wanted to go into the army and get a trade and then um started to play all right with the rugby and make some rep teams in the final year of school and went okay right i well I'm still adamant that I don't want to go to university. I'm going to. Uh, I took up a landscaping apprenticeship, which I really enjoyed when I moved down to Sydney. Yeah, amazing. That's. Uh, <laughs> how did you find that? Yeah, how did you fall into that job? The landscaping. Yeah. Um, well, always wanted to do a trade. Always wanted to do something um, with my hands and, and you know be handy. And I think the main thing why landscaping um, really appealed to me is it, it's, it's the visual. Um, presence that it has like you know you can build a beautiful house but if you don't have a nice garden to finish it off then it just uh, it's a half complete so you know that sitting there and looking at the end of a job going wow look at what we've created is something special like as opposed to a sparker or a plumber oh yeah i put the lights in that yeah cool story who gives a shit damn right for a plumber uh, i put the pipes in there yeah, yeah. nice good on you yeah. whereas the landscape gardening you know you drive past there all the time and yeah just really enjoyed that so you're a man that likes things that look good. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <I'm not. laughs> you're saying you, you broke your leg during that that apprenticeship. Yep. What happened there? How did, how did that come about? Yeah, so I was I'd moved down um, once the first week after I finished my exams um, at Stanley's. I moved down to uh, Bathurst and jo- uh, Bo- Belmore in Sydney. Enjoyed the Bulldogs and moved into the dog kennel, the house that they've got there for um, you know generally the country boys or the Queensland boys or the New Zealanders. So The infamous um, dog house. Yeah, the infamous kennel. Um, yeah. with, you know, all, all of their out-of-state players have gone there, including Sonny Bill. Um, and I wanted, as I said, get a landscaping apprenticeship. And um, in a game there, I think I was playing against Cronulla at Shark Park. Hate that place, hate that <laughs> team. And... Um, <laughs> Preaching to the choir. Yeah, yeah. Bro- broke my leg and, uh, you know, the boss just said to me, you know, don't come back here because um, you know, I can't be worrying about what you're doing with, with the football. I'm, I'm trying to put a, a, a team here together to work sort of thing, which is, I, I thought was – I still do think that's fair enough um, to, to some degree, although I don't necessarily agree um, – when I see other trades, even out in Dubbo, you know, they, these guys who are telling their apprentices that they're not allowed to go and play rugby on a Saturday, and you're like, even though that guy might have played 10 years for the club, you're like, God, mate, that's a bit hypocritical. Why are you taking the enjoyment out of this kid's life? 
Yeah, you don't like restrictions like that, especially, yeah, from a work environment. I guess it's a hard juggle because, you know, when you've got small businesses and yeah. you know, single sort yeah. of operators who are trying to make a go of it, they need yeah. that sort of commitment and reliability. So It's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and I've seen it a lot in the trade, so, yeah. It is a hard one. How did you fall into, or not fall into, how did you happen to come about and get with the Bulldogs? How did, how did that opportunity arise? Um, so I'd never really played um, league. Like League had never been my full-time. I'd just played generally at school just because I, je- I do like the game, but my preference was rugby. And my preference was rugby because I'd probably seen the awesome, um, you know, back then the schoolboy games was on ABC, you know, Joey's and Review, big. So I actually applied for a few of those schools. I applied for Scott's, um, Joey's, uh, Barker, and, and didn't get any interest there. Um, and also the Wallabies were doing really well. You know, they were uh, selling out the MCG with 110,000 people and the opportunity to travel, you know, like um, we'll probably talk about a bit later, some of the countries to go and visit and play and it was phenomenal. I was like, wow, how cool is this? So I want to be a part of rugby. And so I played again a few games of league generally for the school. And then when I made the Australian schoolboys, I actually had um had a bit of interest from the Waratahs in the academy, and then the Roosters and the Bulldogs, and thought, well, you know, I just like what the Bulldogs are offering. They're offering like a you know place in the dog kennel. Um, their training was a bit better renowned um, than say the Waratahs academy. I think at that stage. Uh, they were going to hook me up with a job and really just look after me. So I said, yeah, right, that's that's what I'll do there. And I thought if I don't go and have a crack at league now, then I, I won't go and do it. You know, I didn't see myself going to union, getting stuck in there and then jumping over, if that makes sense. How, yeah, ma- right. how many in the kennel? How many were you living with at that time? God, I think 12 in like an eight-bedroom place. Really? It was hectic. Yeah, right. How was that? Yeah, different. <laughs> I, I, I did not enjoy that. I place I moved into I said listen there's got to be in a two bedroom apartment because it was just too m-. and like some of these kids like some of these kids were at six were 16 and they're on $40,000 a year wow and poor old Bowie's just slogging away as a landscape gardener on, on an apprentice wage you know like they, they didn't have to go to work even some of the blokes who were um, say 19 20 21 22 still in the house were on big money possibly um maybe 25 grand and had their living cost mostly covered um, plus match payments like they didn't have to work so that was tough because sometimes um you know i'd be going to work and they'd just be going to sleep yeah, did you yeah was that that would have been really hard like were you comparing yourself against them and saying you know i've got a raw end of the deal here or were you, was that a, a driving factor to be like oh, i'll i'll be going to keep putting in and, and get it over these guys i don't think either was just but you know th- th- that was what it was the situation you know, th- th- yeah. they'd earned obviously those contracts for what they had done up until that point whereas i hadn't sort of thing it was just um you know we just weren't all aligned it was just tough seeing that when i was getting up at you know say five o'clock and <laughs> yeah. they're just going to bed and, yeah, 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 yeah yeah just going to bed um you know yeah just a few distractions and whatnot and just wanted to and i'm pretty private when i get away from the rugby i like to you know I don't think I've ever lived with another rugby player after that, actually. Yeah, right. Yeah, just like my own space and whatnot. Yeah, amazing. I suppose you've got to be pretty um, uh, driven in a situation like that to keep getting up and doing what you're doing every day when, you, when you're surrounded and living with blokes. Who are 
Yeah, well, in, you, in, in a different situation. You've got to pay the bills. Yeah. Um, so the, the drive wasn't necessarily to get up and go to work. It was like, well, this has got to get done. But you've got to be driven to go and still come back and do all your extras. You know, you're required to train, let's say it was six till eight. But if you rock up there at five, you know, do you want to go and do that? You don't have to do that. That's optional extras. Yeah, that's where I was driven there. Yeah, right. So one of the other things you, you have on your, your LinkedIn profile is that when you moved to Sydney, you learnt uh, the values of determination, dedication and, and sacrifice. What were some of the sacrifices that, you know, you were making in that, that early stage? Yeah, that's a good one. So th- the sacrifices, you know, I'd moved there the first week after um, after I'd finished exams and I went to Belmore. So I didn't know anyone Belmore, you know, country boy, Belmore's a bit different. Um and all my mates at that stage were just going out celebrating. They'd finished school, so they were just mm. getting on the piss, you know, they were out having parties and whatnot, and they're always, every weekend, there'd be someone having an 18th or a party out in the country, and here I was, Saturday morning, getting up early in the morning and driving to bloody Wanda Sandhills, running up Sandhills, and I was like, far out. And, um, yeah, it was pretty tough, eh? Like, uh, yeah, and I left my girlfriend too, so I was quite lonely there, especially leading up to Christmas, wasn't sure if I want to do it. And there's, you know, plenty of examples of guys, especially country blokes, that moved to, um, you know, Sydney particularly, and they just can't handle being away from everything. They've got their network, um, their family, their friends, and especially the Aboriginal guys, you know, they find it particularly tough. They might, might last a week, maybe two, and then they go home. So that was tough, and especially on the Sundays, I felt quite lonely, like... A, I used to, um, you know, cry myself to sleep sometimes. I eh? just, just going, fuck, do I actually want to do this? Do what? what am, why am I doing this? But, and I suppose that's where the determination came through. No, I'm going to keep going with this. So that's what got you through it. Those that determination of wanting to succeed there. Yeah, yeah, to give it a good crack because I'd seen a lot of blokes who had gone, who were from Dubbo particularly, who had gone and you know you'd heard that they'd got opportunities or contracts to go and join a you know, professional organisation, they end up back there and then often because of a girl, they go back, you know, the, the girlfriend told them to come back and then um, they move back and three or four years later they'd be regretting it and they'd just be, you know, wrecked. You'd see them on the drink and I saw, like, I saw that for my entire career, not just in Dubbo but also in, in Sydney where blokes going, oh, jeez, I wish I stuck with it. Um, and I, I didn't want to do that. I was, I was worried that that happened. I thought, well, I'm just going to give it all and see what happens and at least say that I've given my best shot as opposed to giving up. It's a young age, we, yeah, making decisions like that, I suppose, like and knowing to stick with it because it's like, – I remember when I first finished school, I yeah, all I wanted to do was get on the drink and party and you literally, yeah, on to the next party every weekend, wasn't it? Mm. So it is a massive sacrifice at that age because you think you are missing out on everything, don't you? Mm. Like, Oh, yeah, yeah. You, everyone is doing it. Your world is doing it, yeah. And it's a big thing. Like, it's a big thing to leave school. You've gone through school for 12 or 13 years. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty... Institutionalised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it is an achievement, but I suppose too, you know, you want to go out and celebrate that you're now into the real world and um you know hang around everyone and do that and, and you know you've got that period it's for you finish the exams at what the start of november and you've got two you've got a clear two months to go and do that i suppose yeah exactly 
I mean, I think the laying there crying yourself to sleep at times is like that's pretty raw, but that's pretty real, right? And I mean, I think there's plenty of blokes out there who cry themselves to sleep for all sorts of different reasons, but no one's talking about it, you mm. know. But this is this kind of shit that young blokes go through at these times of their life when they're trying to, and like you, you know, your example, trying not sure what you know. What if what you're doing is the right thing, if you're going in the right direction, you know, you probably got a great opportunity in front of you, but trying to figure out, so an existential crisis, trying to figure out what the fuck you're supposed to be doing with your life. Yeah, because it is it is a big gamble too, you know, like those 50 blokes I reckon in that, uh, that's the Jersey flag under 20s, there's probably about 50 blokes I reckon when I first got there and, and five of them didn't come back after Christmas because they were just like, nah, don't want a bar of this. And out of, say, that group... Um, because we had a few of the, uh, so you get the jersey flag, the um, SG balls, the 18s, and the Haramat 16s. You had a few of the SG ball blokes, so they cut a few away. But you know, out of those guys, those 50 that were there, two blokes went on to have like a decent rugby career. Myself and um, Isaac Luke. Oh, really? Bully. Yeah, the bull. <laughs> He's a champion. <laughs> yeah, right. What was he like back back oh, in those just, days? Yeah, a little smart ass, but he was uh, he. Just unbelievably strong. Like, I'd sit there and try and wrestle with him. And, like, you know, when I first went there, I had no strength anyway. But the bloke was just all over me, unfortunately. And he, yeah. wasn't much, he wasn't, you know, not a big bloke by any means, but he was a little goer. Yeah. No, he's, yeah. Good, good man for South old uh, bully Luke. So yeah. where, where was it on to next from there? Uh, so after a year, I was like, right, um, you know, I'm not enjoying life. Um, I'd... Got the sack, so I was like in a bit of trouble here. I didn't have a real good crack at school, um, but I need to do something. I need to go to university and get a degree. Um, the one thing you didn't want to do? Yeah, the one thing I didn't want to do because I was like, I was quite clear that I wanted to be a professional rugby player. So I uh, fortunately um, got into ACPE, Australian College of Physical Education, um, got in there and started doing uh, PE teaching. And went back to the Waratahs and moved over to um, Northern Suburbs. Joined a rugby club called Northern Suburbs. So because on like with the rugby league, you played a lot of Friday night games and a lot of a lot of Sunday games. Particularly the Bulldogs, I reckon that you played a lot of Sunday games. So that also made it tough. It meant that you couldn't really yeah. go back. If we played Friday night, it would be all right. I'd go back to Bathurst, um, you know, and see my girlfriend and my brother who was at, at, at school. Then go and check in with him or sign him out. Um, but after, you know, that. whereas when I went back to rugby, you know, there was all the grades there. There was, say, four grades, three coals, and they all hung around. So it was that real um, club community feel, which I really enjoyed. So it was good to be back there and had a year um, with the Waratahs in the Waratahs Academy and then was fortunate enough to pick up a three-year deal with the uh, with the Waratahs full-time squad. It's a massive move. How did it come about from the from the rugby league side, like the jersey flag playing for the dogs? Was that something that you sought out to go to the Tars, or was that an opportunity that came to you? Or how did well, that transition happen? Well, they had happen? they had been interested when I was you know finishing school. Um, obviously, Australian schoolboy seven anyway. So yeah, we were interested to get me there, um, and then they were still interested. They'd come and watched a few games with me playing league, and the Bulldogs were still keen. But, um, yeah, I just wanted to get back to a bit of familiarity and get out of Belmore. So Rugby Union was the um, opportunity and had um, a probably a bit more stable offer from um, not only the Waratahs but Northern Suburbs to, to help me, support me, so that I could focus a bit more on the rugby as well. Yeah, amazing. 
Who was a coach at the Waratahs then when you moved there? Ewan McKenzie was the um, like the first coach, the head coach, and the, but I didn't have much to do with him in that first year. I was with the, the academy coaches. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. So you started there in 2007. Did you say? Was it 2007? 2006 was the academy. Academy. Yep. Yeah, and two thousand seven was your first season with the with the Tars. Yep. So how many, were you full time in the? Yeah, full time. Yeah, yeah. Yep. When um, fortunate enough, went on a tour to the UK and Ireland, and and played four games over there. And after that, and got told I was um, yeah, been offered a three year deal, which I was ecstatic about. Like I, I was quite surprised. Three years was uh, probably unheard of for a young bloke. Um, generally, it was. You know, maybe a rookie deal for one year or a two-year deal, but they offered me a three-year deal. So um, got that and then played, um, made my debut in the second second round of the 2007 rugby season over in Durban against the Sharks at the age of 20. Wow. Fuck. Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> How was that? Was that, did you, was it... Oh. Yeah. I, I'd come that quickly, so I'd signed a two-year deal with the Waratahs to be in the academy, so... To sign that deal and then go on and make that debut was unbelievable how quickly that happened. It was awesome because, you know, a lot of these guys I'd been admiring, you know, who, who I was playing with, you know, Matt Dunning, Adam Fryer, um, Dan Vickerman, um, you know, Wycliffe Parler, Kirtley Bills in his first year who I'd been watching um, and play, played against. Oh, because he was well. carving it up at yeah. Joey's, wasn't he? Was he yep. at Joey's? Yeah. Yep. Lot, Lottie Takiri, you know, um, Peter Hewitt. Then all of a sudden you just, you, you, you're you one of them sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. it, it was it was amazing at 20 years of age to, to be fortunate enough to, yeah, go on and make your debut, yeah. Do you feel like you belong there or you feel a bit out of place? No, I, I felt as though I belonged. Um, I'd done pretty well in the trials, I reckon, at my stripes. Um I got man of the match in one of the trials uh, against the Crusaders, and that gave me a lot of belief. But I suppose I was just like, you know what, I, I'm just going to go out and give it my all, and what will be will be, sort of thing. So yeah, it w- there was not that feeling of oh, should I be here at all. Yeah, was there a moment where it sort of sunk in, like where you got out there and you're like, holy shit, I'm actually doing what I've always dreamt of doing, or was it just sort of another game? Another game of footy, obviously, it was a bigger oh, occasion, no, but no, was it no, like it was a definitely not another game? Yeah, you're pretty nervous, you know. That's again that 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 had sort of been the dream, the goal is to be a professional rugby player, and yeah, even maybe after the game, you know, when you're out and you're just like, I've achieved something that no one will ever be able to take away from me. You know, you're in the nightclub and you're just going, well, I'm actually a capped super super um, rugby player. I'm, I'm a Waratah. That's pretty awesome, and again, like you know, I've got a photo that's still um, quite special to me. Where we've gone out for in Durban, and in the photo is again you know, um, Lottie Dakiri, um, Adam Fryer, uh, I think Will Caldwell might be in there, Peter Hewitt, Tom Carter, like just legends. And I'm in there. I'm just like, wow, that's at 20 years of age. <laughs> I'm, I'm having a wine with dinner with these guys. How good! That's awesome. <laughs> how, did you, how did you stay grounded through all that process? Like, how did you keep your feet on the ground? Oh, <laughs> you, those blokes will knock you down pretty quick. Some of, some of the blokes in that squad will knock you down pretty quick. But I don't, you know, 
the old man used to knock it out of you too. Like you did. my old man was pretty tough on me. Where I, there'd be games where I'd score three tries and he'd walk <laughs> off and go, "Why'd you miss that tackle?" So grounded just comes with its fucking territory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. So your old man's a bit of a hard ass. Yeah, he's pretty tough on me. But you hear you hear a lot of those fathers that are uh, that are harder, but it's sort of they are. That they are so proud of what you are doing, but they just do that just to get that extra inch out of you, I think. Is, is that how you look back on it, or was it sort of he was just a hard old bastard? No, I don't think, that, oh, if I do this, I'll, I'll get the most out of this. But no, no I don't agree with that at yeah. all. It's just like, I'm not going to give him anything. He just, he just doesn't yeah. want you to get too carried away yeah. and just bring, bring you back yeah. down a peg. It's, it's really interesting, you know, like I do a lot of personal development and a lot of stuff with the leadership and culture and you've got to understand where people have come from. So what's, what's been his upbringing? You know, did he just grow up like this or is that just, or has that been instilled in him because of his old man? And, um, you know, I, I, I asked some interesting questions of uh, that I had for this little project on self-development and I went and asked... Um, him and my uncle about their upbringing and whatnot. You know, like some of the stories that they had there were pretty tough from their old man who, looking back, I had my uncle who I interviewed went away to Vietnam and he, like, you know, now that we know what PTSD is, he goes, I can definitely see that, you know, his father, my grandfather had PTSD. He goes, you know, but you didn't know that at the time. It was just like he's, an, you know, an angry, volatile bloke. You've grown up with that without any understanding. So what impact has that had mm. on their life, their upbringing, and then turning them into a father? Whereas now, because we've got that awareness, we can then be a bit more considerate and understanding. Not that it makes that sort of behaviour okay, but again, we can sort of understand. See where, where it comes from. Yeah, see where it's come from. Just yeah. from a different perspective. It's a, yeah. Everyone is a product of their, of their environment and their upbringing, aren't they? And it's not something that you can really... Um, help a lot of the time you know what i mean you kind of end up being the you know the way you are yeah it's a lot of hard work and it's got to be you know that that's that's got to come from self-awareness for sure you can't sit there and tell someone this is what you've got to change that's they've got to discover that themselves exactly. and they've got to they you know, i think you guys said you want to talk about it, but that self-awareness and and knowing what your strengths and your weaknesses are and that's a big thing that i do again with the leadership and culture coaching you know, i'd say there's four areas like you know say for leaders in an organisation that you want to work on is you're a, as a person, you, your strengths and your weaknesses, you've got to be aware of those. As a leader, your strengths and your weaknesses in your industry, you, you know, what are your strengths and your weaknesses? How are you learning and improving in that area and in your role? So if you're in marketing, you're an agricultural company, you've got to learn about marketing, but you've also got to learn a lot more about agriculture. So, um, you know, much like a rugby team, you can only improve on the things that you have identified are areas that are holding you back from reaching your potential. But see, this is the challenge, right? Because I think when when you're in a team environment like that, you, I mean, you, you can be critical of your own game for sure, but you've also got coaches and support staff around you who can help identify different weaknesses and things in your game that could be improved. What we're dealing with is, I mean, we're obviously targeting tradies and blue-collar, you know, industries and all that yep. kind of stuff, and there's, there are a lot of similarities, but... People don't necessarily have those coaches and that support network around them, and they might be in a relationship where they've got some negative traits and they're not being the best version of themselves. But they don't realise, and when they get, you know, when the missus or, or whoever brings it up, they don't want to hear it from from them. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And then it's like, how do you get someone to become self aware that sometimes their actions or their behaviours might be negative? I suppose you can get them to um, 
you know, rate themselves on different aspects or asking questions. So, you know, how is your relationship? It's great. It's perfect. It's good. It's very good. It's okay. It could be better. I hate it. You know, it's the worst. I don't want to be here doing that and, um, you know, taking that time to sit there and assess. But I suppose, you know, that's up to you guys to what are the what are the areas that they should be sitting there and assessing and reflecting on and working out what they want to improve in and how to improve that um, and, and possibly, you know, do you guys have a scorecard or something that's it there? I know I've been to some personal development stuff, Tony Robbins, where they get you to rate each different, I think there's a wheel of eight which you can get on the internet um, and, and you rate those different aspects out of ten. So that's a good way to start and I don't know if you do have that wheel or something like that but getting that out to them and it's definitely something we've talked about a lot and you know because there's all there's yeah it's a goal of ours to be able to provide that sort of you know collateral information to allow blokes to do that but you're saying you've been to different tony robbins things right and you've gone you've taken yourself there going through the door so that's half the battle like you want to you want to go and you want to do some self-development stuff so that's awesome but how do you get it's, it's those people i guess who have an existence where they aren't even at that stage, you know, they just don't want to... They don't want to accept that there's a problem or something d- or like that. Or they don't even know, or, you know, they, yeah. they, they might not even know. Or they might know and they just aren't ready to... Well, if they know. think that they don't have fucking weaknesses, they're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and we can yeah, always we, be better. Yeah. And that's, that, for me, that comes down to, you know, I am constantly looking to improve. So how can I constantly improve in every aspect of my life? Because that's what I want to do as a rugby player, you know, like... I get frustrated. I remember one coach telling me, um, you know, I said, oh, what can I work on? And they said, oh, just keep doing what you're doing. And I was like, no. Nah. What sort of advice is that? Yeah. I was like, mate, have the balls to tell me what I need to improve. Like, I, I could point out several things, but I'll, I want to hear it from you because I was constantly striving and I would go to the coaches all the time going, tell me what I need to do. Tell me what I need to do. Because I do not because, you know, I was embarrassed and, lacked humility to to get that feedback but because I simply wanted to be the best that I could be like I was an average rugby player but I was constantly trying to improve and get better because um it was a constant grind mate like I was in and out of professional rugby four times because I was that much of a battler (laughs) (laughs) there's there's perseverance for you uh, I mean well let's let's talk about that because I mean in 2008 um in the second year of your contract with the uh, Waratahs yeah yeah you made the Super Rugby final in Christchurch, played yep. the Crusaders. Yep. And lost twenty to twelve. Yep. Run us through that experience over there. Gee, I probably I, I probably can't talk to you about much of that because I literally have you know, I don't reflect back on that. Yeah. I, I just don't. It's like an erased memory and that's why I'm so driven about teams and people succeeding because um, you know, the difference between second and first especially in um, an environment where you are measured and there's so much scrutiny such as a professional rugby environment is huge. Like uh, 2011 when we went on to win the Super Rugby title, it was one of the best memories of my life that no one will ever be able to take away from me. 2008 was pretty close in terms of what we achieved, but I don't remember much of that. Well, you know, so, so is that something you... You, you pushed aside because didn't, you didn't get to where you'd sort of set your goal? Yeah, probably had no need to reflect on it. Um, yeah. The one thing I do remember is that I was, uh, I was in the warm-up and they used to have the bloke who'd ride around on the horse and him swinging the sword and I thought it was near me. I'm 
give a bit of a duck and half the crowd starts laughing. Fuck you, Chris. Tough, tough ass to go over there and play a, yeah, a final. Especially, yeah, when they were in that era. Oh, yeah. So that kind of um, ability to move on, I suppose, is what you're talking about and just not get caught up in, in some of the... Harder yeah, times or you the do losses. a quick just, review. Yeah, you know what, what? What do I need to do? What could I've done better? What do I need to improve on? But I don't sit there, um, dwell. Little, yeah, dwelling on what could have been sort of thing. Well, you know, there's nothing to be gained out of that. That's an impressive attribute to have because there would be a lot of people that probably a lot of your teammates that hang up on that loss. Probably I don't know. Yeah, I'm just maybe. assuming, but yeah, to look back on it, like Curtly Beal, like he hasn't. They've never won a comp. Oh no, he did no, win a comp, did, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I've just lied. Caught yeah. in a lie. No, but you're <laughs> right. Like, you know, some of those guys went to the um, one year they finished first and then bowed out, and, and two, um, you know, they lost to the Brumbies when they were hosting the um, home final, and then they lost to the Crusaders in another final over there, and lost to the Cru- yeah. You know, they've gone through so close and haven't won. So, uh, you know, as I said, the fact that I did win one is unbelievable. That sense of achievement and. You know, you don't have 10-year reunions to make the grand final. <laughs> yeah. So it's onward, next one. Yeah. So after um, so after that, it's sort of your, your 2009 season with the Tars. Run us through that because it was sort of – it was a, a, a transition in coaching, you were saying? Yeah, new coach came in and just, you know, for whatever, I didn't fit the picture and um, unfortunately didn't get any opportunities that year. So – Found myself looking for a professional contract um, anywhere in the world at that stage and nothing came about. And then one, uh, one day the manager said, listen, I've got some good news and some bad news. Or he said, I've got an offer. I said, okay, what's the bad news? He goes, it's in the third division in Italy. And I'm like, oh, okay, awesome. And um, so it was, it was, you know, it was sort of professional slash semi-professional contract. Um there was three international players. We were the only ones paid enough that we didn't have to work, and um, you know that was that was the offer on the table. And he said it's either that or you can go back to work. And I went and uh, stuff that. Not at twenty three years of age, go to Italy and enjoy the cultural experience, and you know have a look at the, the food, the country, and the women. How was that transition for <laughs> you? I mean, like obviously the, a new a change of scenery in Italy is amazing. If anyone, yeah, has been there, it's unreal. But the have you been to Italy? I've you? been, yeah, I've been. <laughs> so it's not about me, mate. We got Bowen here, right? Um, that was a transition living in Italy, not where not there was no women that spoke English <laughs> yeah. for two months. No. Was Lots of tough. hand gestures. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> yeah, it was a dry couple of months. But I mean, as in the the playing, you know, professional rugby, Super Rugby, and then going and playing third division in Italy was that something that was hard for you to accept? Oh, yeah. Like was yeah, like the and like the coaches over there were pathetic. Yeah, um, it was so frustrating. Yeah, because you obviously wanted so, to give so much, but you just weren't given the opportunity to. Oh, provide I just that. and like you know the the quality it would be not even Brisbane first grade would not be anywhere near what it was over there. I, I think I compared it to say Sydney third grade club rugby, probably second grade. Yeah, so so you're doing the career that you want to be doing. You're playing rugby, which mm. is what you want to be doing, better than landscaping or whatever. But you're doing it in a not very desirable circumstance. Yeah, you're in Italy, but you're playing third division. How do you get yourself up for playing? Like, how yeah, it pretty games? tough. Eh? Like, even our culture was not real good in the team then either. As I said, the coaches, no one sort of listened to them or respect them. They didn't know what they were talking about. 
Um, it must be pretty hard to at that time to see, like, where the fuck's this going? Mm, where yeah, like, was where it, am I going yeah. with this? What am I just biding time here? Am I in limbo or sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. I didn't sort of. It was a bit of uncertainty, I suppose, there about uh, where will the next contract come from? <laughs> like, not exactly. Like, there's too many people knocking on your door from third division in Italy. <laughs> sort of thing, yeah. So. Yeah. How did you manage it? How did how did you manage that situation? And yeah, get up and I was, well, yeah, you know, it was probably big bowl of spaghetti bolognese. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good to go. Drank. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I was necessarily managing it. Oh, I was quite, I was quite frustrated. I was just like, yeah, probably asking, how am I going to get out of this? Because our team was going crap. Like you know, we're closer to the bottom of the table than the top of the table. It's not like we were having the opportunity to earn promotion. So I was just getting frustrated, and yeah, I wouldn't say I did manage with that. Mm. So I suppose it's just at that point in time you just, I mean, what are you still? You're 23. Like you're just probably more enjoying living it up on the other side of the world. Oh, I wouldn't say living it up because we weren't on the like you know I was on eight. 1,500 euros a month. Yeah, right. So not big money. I yeah. would have got more probably staying in in, um, in Sydney working as a garbo, to be honest. Yeah, right. I did, I did, like, I love travelling, so I did enjoy the cultural experience mm. and I was living with a couple of good blokes and the bloke who owned the pub slash cafe slash restaurant literally across the road from us was a legend who looked after us. So um, that made it a little bit easier and I had you know I did have little weekends booked away for budget traveling um, like flights over there I remember I was going to go see a mate in Germany and the flights are six Australian dollars each so I booked them and we didn't know when our time off was going to be so I booked one I think you know Thursday afternoon Friday morning Friday Arvo and Saturday morning and then booked the return I booked four different return flights just knowing that I'd be able to get on one of them. <laughs> and that was probably what was, you know, kept me going in terms of motivation was the opportunity to make the most of being in a shit situation but have a look at the have a look at the world. Yeah, well. Turning it into a yeah, a bit more of a positive experience, mm-hmm. I suppose, making the most out of the situation. The your brother was coming over with a mate to, to visit you in two thousand and ten. Mm-hmm. Um, and tragically, yeah, lost his life in a, in an accident. Mm-hmm. Um Happy to run us through. Yeah, so I uh, walked off, um, walked off the field uh, on a Sunday and had this uh, message from mum. Um, Call me and you know, no kiss, no hug, no hello, how you going or anything. I know love mum. And um, anyway, I was pissed off because we'd lost again. Um, again, not managing. Don't know yeah, how yeah. I'm going to get out of this situation. Threw my phone back in the bag and. Um, then I was like, just wait, but, you know, as I said, there was none of that, hey, hey, how you going? Uh, thinking about what time it is back in uh, Australia, and it was like 2 o'clock in the morning, I was like, oh, geez, that's not right, and so I picked up the phone, initially I thought it was going to be dad, was dead dad, had cancer, mum was sitting there bawling her eyes out, um, you know, crying, um, couldn't get any words out, and I thought, fuck, yeah, dad, dad's dead. You know, as I said, he'd been through cancer. Both her parents were in um, were in hospital, I think, or caring or nursing, yeah, nursing home, whatever it may be. But she was just too distraught that I was like, "That's not what it is." And unbelievable how this is all going through my head so quickly. And um, then I was like, "Well, it's not my half sister either," um, because that's 
dad's daughter, so um, not mum's. So he would have made that phone call, and then uh, dad gets on and um, you know he says it's Dan. Oh, he's dead, and I was like, fuck. There I was on the other side of the world, you know, pretty, pretty lonely and just wanting, just not yeah everything going through my head. What's going on? And yeah, it was bloody. Rock my world, obviously. So I had to go over to um, London. Uh, went over to London that night and caught up with his mate because his mate had been out on the town with him. They got split up, as you do. Oh, fuck. And just all of a sudden he gets a knock on the door in the afternoon going, you know, Dan's dead. So that poor bastard was there for God knows how long, not knowing what's happening. and On his own. On his own. Yeah, that was tough. So I finally got over there and had to go and identify the body the next day and go through all the procedures and red tape and then flew back um, flew back to Australia. Yeah. Wow. So that's a, a obviously a life-changing occurrence. Yeah, that was... Yeah, exactly, you know, life-changing occurrence. It was it was bloody, bloody tough, so... Um, Obviously had his funeral and, and did his eulogy, which was pretty moving, pretty impressive to see um, you know, the lives that he had touched. So many people reached out to me and told me their story about um, the impact he had had on their lives. Even if it had just been one time they'd met him, they'd tell an unbelievable story. And that was quite, um, I was quite proud of that, you know, that he had left that legacy and touched so many people. And then I was, okay, what am I going to go and do? You know, shit, I was just so lost. So I went and went out and worked, did some labouring with a mate who was out in Burke and just wanted to get away from Dubbo a bit and wanted to go somewhere a bit quieter and get my mind off things, you know, no point just sitting around home but couldn't go and play rugby in my previous job. Um, and I was out there and thought, you know, shit, it was a good opportunity to just assess and reflect and what do I actually want and... From then I was like, right, no, I want to get back into rugby and I want to be a professional rugby player and I want to be a professional rugby player in Australia. I don't don't care if any contracts come up overseas. I just want to stay in Australia and have a good crack at it. So I moved down to Sydney, went down there and obviously didn't have a professional contract. So I linked up with my old club, which was actually um, a new club at this stage, Warringah Rats, went back there and um, got a job through a mate who was uh, working as a garbo, as a rubbish collector. So I, I had opportunities and offers to go and get a, you know, a career or a job in the city, but I was like, no, no, I just want to work and then so that I can finish work and go and do my extra training and whatnot, whatever I need to do to be a professional rugby player again. So I was doing that, hoping that a professional rugby contract would come up. Um, Rod McQueen, who is the Melbourne Rebels, were coming in the next year, 2011. I was like, shit, you know, that'll be a good opportunity. Rod McQueen was affiliated with our with our club at Warringah and I was the captain of it at that stage. So I was like, okay, this should be a good opportunity here. But unfortunately, didn't didn't sign me. So I was, um, you know, doing that, and I'd gone back to uni, study full time as well. So I was pretty hectic, and reached out to Ewan McKenzie through my agent, and he said, "Oh no, he's looking after the young blokes up there," which was fair enough. You know, he's looking after the at that stage they had Jake Schatz, um, Liam Gill, Ed Quirk, and had Lee Tamiki on the books as well, and a few other guys. So 
they were pretty stuck there, which was fair enough. But I, so I reached out to you and myself and said, can I come up just for an opportunity? And he said, okay, well, I've got no contracts or money, but yeah, you can come up. So I was training Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday with the Reds and um, I was working in a pub out at Goodna on Wednesday and, and Friday night and going to train Saturday morning and Saturdays and Saturday nights working at the pub. And, um, you know, again, plenty of good came out of that. I just went and caught up with... The bloke who owns that pub, he's a good mate of mine um, for lunch today. Yeah. yeah, wow. Yeah. So you came up from Sydney to Queensland to train with the Reds mm. and with no contract. Yeah. And no you, sustained, yeah. you sustained yourself by pouring beers. Yeah, South Magpies, the mighty South Magpies, the legends. They hooked me up with a room in one of their places. Um, there were a couple of other blokes, older blokes who were involved with the club, working in the club, so... Um, and Cameron, I got to say at his place, good old Camo. Um, but yeah, like I'd left, you know, my, my brother had passed away in January, played club rugby in Sydney, and then I moved up here at the start of November. So that was pretty tough again, cause, because all my mates, like my brother and I had lived together before I moved to Italy, um, in Queenscliff in Manly at that stage. And, uh, you know, we had an awesome, tight knit little network and, and, and um, community down there that. Leveraged off, and, and thankfully, I, that's where I moved back to too because it was really good to have those guys. I needed that support network and going through that. And um, when I come back from Italy, I'd uh, rekindle my relationship with my girlfriend at the time and really needed her um, her support. She got me through a fair bit too. And then here I was sacrificing and leaving all that to come up here and, and pursue again. Yeah, the the goal, the dream. What's the mindset there? Are you just uh, as at this stage, you just like, well, I've got nothing to lose. Yeah, totally changed. Like, you know, I I'd never taken rugby for granted at all because I had to work so hard to get there. But just it was a new, um, you know, steel resilience and 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 mindset of right. You know, I've literally got absolutely nothing to lose. Just changed perspective on life a fair bit more, and I had a pretty good perspective on life in any way sort of thing. I was going to say, it sounds like you already had that uh, really good attitude and a good perspective, but that, um, yeah, obviously that traumatic event, losing your brother and yeah. whatnot, it's kind of just like, well, I, I don't give a shit yeah. anymore. And, you know, I think anyone that's been through that, hopefully they've sat there and gone, shit, you know, it does change your perspective. I don't think anyone can sit there and say that it did not change their perspective. But then I think sometimes people just... They know now what they should be doing more so because they've actually had time to reflect and assess and what do I want. But then they go back to the old, the easy, and they just go to doing something that they were doing before, even though they said, oh, I, I now... This is the turning point. Yeah, this is the turning point. But they don't go and actually act on uh, that. Yeah, I was like, yeah 100% right, right, mate. Yeah, I yeah. think people, well, people know. People know the difference. People know what the right thing is to be doing, what they should be doing. In yeah. the back of their heads, they know, but I suppose... In a fast-paced life, it's easy to find excuses why why not to, and it's also yeah. it's also scary for a lot of people. But yeah. this is, I guess, when we talk about this self-assessing stuff, like you know, a lot of people only do that when they experience a traumatic event or like a big life event that shakes yeah. them up, like a you know broken relationship or a, or the death in the family or anything, you know, lost job, whatever. But I suppose it's important to really try to get that message across that yeah. it's something you should be doing regularly anyway, you know, yeah, to, to I, try to put yourself yeah, in the best position. You've got to schedule that in. And often, you know, I'll work with some... So I do a lot of leadership and culture stuff. 
obviously, obviously, you know, nationals, multinationals, but I'd still do a little bit of small business stuff back in Dubbo and around that area. And uh, sit there and have days where people have to come in and stop, assess, reflect, set goals and sort of go, you know, how am I going? Because if you don't make time for it, like there's guys there that are small businesses and if they don't come to that session, which is every three months, they won't go and do it. They just don't make time for it. So people won't do that in their lives. So when do you actually schedule that? Mm. Like when do you actually schedule that? Like you guys are in the business. I've seen upstairs. You've got a fair bit on the walls. You you look like you've got <laughs> fair bit. Just yeah, fair bit. <laughs> but you you've got plans and goals there. When you you know you sit there and assess and review that again, much like a rugby team, once a week by the looks of it, I would imagine. Probably well, yeah, we do. Day. We have yeah a morning uh, a Monday morning entire yeah company meeting, and then Dan and the marketing team meet um, after that. And they meet every morning for a quick whip as well. But I think we've always been driven to, yeah, be looking further forward and not so much day-to-day and, and, and know. But you've got to stop and okay, so you look forward, but too often you don't stop and look back. Definitely, go, definitely. Uh, what have we achieved? How are we going? Right, I did set these goals. How, have I actually gone to achieve? Oh, I, uh, just grind, 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 moving forward as opposed to, no, no, stop. How are we going? Am I on track? Is this going right? Yeah, definitely. Oh, well, I think the the biggest thing um, for us is figuring out what has definitely worked mm. and what definitely hasn't, and then focusing on what does work, and then working on what hasn't. You know what I mean? Mm. Like it's sort of. I, I, but no one, no one really does that a lot for their personal lives. Mm. And you're right; people just do just grind along. Yeah. But I mean, how how do you? Well, we did speak about it earlier, but how do you try and make that a priority or is it just showing people what, you know, can be achieved by doing it and setting that example yourself and reflecting that out for other people to see? Or is it more educate? I don't know. Like what, how? Is it asking them questions and getting them to again discover that? So have you done that? Do you think that would be beneficial? What do you actually want to do? Have you got any goals for this year? Do you have any holidays planned? Why? Why not? Is there anything in particular that you would like to do with your kids? It's just questioning, yeah. Just well, asking it's, them. It's unco- I think it's a bit uncomfortable, right? Like when you have to actually – when you've got to answer those questions yourself, you can you, – no one has to no, you, you, right? right? Yeah, you want you, – you, that's why you know, I do that too. I go you, We're talking about going to see other people. I go and see other people to make sure that I do that and to get an outside perspective because sometimes it is a bit um, daunting to do that by mm. yourself. So I like – again – People would go and say, oh, as if you get, you know, I don't want to go and see a psychologist. Uh, it's a sign of weakness. I would sit there and go, well, I'm going to go see a psychologist so I can get the most out of myself. Mm. Like, I, the, how are you looking at that? Yeah. Same as, like, you know, it's a common thing with a business coach to go, oh, I don't want to see a business coach. My business isn't doing shit. Mate, coaching is all about taking you to the next level. Same <laughs> as with a rugby Team, no, mm. the coaches are there not because you shit. Yeah, trying to make you better. <laughs> yeah, like, that is a fucking perfect example. Every like the best rugby um, teams in the world have got a coach. Mate, Tiger Woods and Roger Federer are surrounded by different, you know, experts and gurus <laughs> and coaches all trying to refine you. Know, whether it be Tiger Woods, probably with his putt, chip, drive, all different aspects of his game. Mm. 
not because he's shit, because he wants to be best. <laughs> he wants to keep on top. So yeah. true, but people don't. Yeah, fuck. It's not. It doesn't filter back through into everyday society, does it? I it's, think this is a good ass block. It's a good, um, you know, perception, I suppose, when you, you've been an athlete and you understand that coaching, you know, that mentality and what you get out of it. But when you talk about going and seeing a, a psychologist or whatever, like you're hundred percent right. You want to you want to get the most out of yourself. You want to be as good as you can. But a lot of people. The conversation around seeing mental health professionals now has changed a lot. And I think mm. everyone knows it. It's much more common thing that, you know, more common than what anyone knows. But a lot of people are scared because they've never done it. They don't know what what they might, you know, what might happen, what they might discover about themselves. You know what I mean? I think that unknown... Do you reckon it's that or do you reckon it's the, the, the fear of what... Oh of what others will say about them. Well, Still that group mentality, or as if you go, fuck off, mate. Well, that's a... That's group, a, that's the key word. But that's a whole set. That's a group whole mentality. other issue, isn't it? Because, yeah. like, when you're when you sort of... Yeah. But if you spoke individually to someone about it, that yeah. conversation's completely different. As in, like... Or even if they're in the piss. <laughs> yeah. 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 Most definitely. Most definitely. I mean, I think we're slowly changing the perception, and conversations like this hopefully are going to change, you know, people's understanding of what the importance is of seeing other people... And opening up and, yeah, setting goals and, and striving to be better and, and not just accepting for who you are mm. and, and always getting, yeah. People think when you're setting goals, they've got to be big goals. Like, you know, I want to have a, a, a boat worth half a million dollars or I want to live in this massive um, mansion or whatnot. But for me, I went away, uh, you know, during over the Christmas break, I did two trips I went away to Wagga um, and looked after a little farm down there for a bloke who was um, going away to the coast who wanted a bit of time away from the farm and um, you know I didn't take my phone there and I came back Dubbo had New Year's Eve and then I went out to Wanaring about two hours past Burke and took my little man out there you know that was a goal of mine to take my little man out west um, go do some shooting just have a bit of a look around drive around and again stay off the phone goal ticked yeah um, you know, that's that's a good achievement start for yeah. me for the year. That's the first thing I did in in two thousand and twenty sort of thing. You know, so already by the end of the first week, I have achieved a pretty significant goal to go four nights off off the phone. How did you find that experience? Oh, I love it. I love getting out there, and I, I love getting off the phone too. Yeah, it's amazing how attached you do get to it. Because even when you do, yeah, put it away, you notice yourself just in your what you're doing then you stop and you yeah. look around and you think oh, and it, then you even if you don't have service you'll still just yeah. pull it out and oh. be, you know it's just it's stupid and I'm one of those people that always has to be doing something so that's why I purposely do not even take the phone it's not I don't have service it's like I don't have a phone so I'm a lot more engaged with the people that are around me and you know my little boy's only four years old so that was pretty cool you know spending that quality time with him and really engaging with him I loved it mate that's awesome priority good priorities right well, the oh. sorry, did I just got no, something? no. You go, <laughs> sorry. you go, you go. I was just so that two thousand and eleven, um, you're yeah, work. You're pouring pouring beers in the pub at Goodnight. You're training with the Reds, who are a stacked side. Um, run us through what happened um, when that season kicked off. Like, walk us through that that journey. Yeah, so I got a opportunity to I first of all got selected on the bench for the first trial, which was up against the Crusaders in Cairns. So. Awesome, tick that goal, bang. And you're still not on the payroll or contract by this stage? No, no, no. no, no. So um, if bastards are digging into me working time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, get selected again on the bench uh, for the trial up in uh, Darwin against the Brumbies. 
And then the following week, yeah, we got selected um, to on the bench against the four. So unbelievable, ecstatic to do that. You know, um, again, I, I achieved another goal there. That was a pretty big goal to do that. It was like making my debut almost again because of what I'd been through. Um, the following week, we go down to New South Wales and we get smashed 30-6 to six, um, by the Waratahs. And there was a real turning point in the change rooms after the game or the meeting room after the game with Ewan McKenzie there. Uh, addressing what's going on because we'd trained so well in the pre-season. The boys had finished fifth the year before, pretty pumped after being in the bottom three for the six years before that. Uh, it was a good vibe, but it just wasn't happening. Um, so we had a bit of a tough conversation there. And then the following week, I got selected to um, to start. and We go down and play against the Brumbies in Canberra and knock them off for the first time down there on their home ground. So, you know, goal, tick, had a good win there, celebrated as a team, which was pretty awesome. Come back, um, played against the Melbourne Rebels, I think, the week after. Um, and then finally the fifth game, uh, play against the Cheetahs. And uh, that was the... So back then they had an agreement. The Players Association, the Rugby Union Players Association with the the franchises or you know ARU, as they were known then, had an agreement if you played five... Super Rugby matches, they had to give an automatic professional contract. And um, in that game, I actually got uh, man of the match. I've still got the cup of the man of the match. And uh, in the 78th minute, I flew into a ruck and got concussion. And then was, uh, so anyone not aware of how concussion works, you generally just forget totally what's happening, where you're at, you know, sometimes who you are. And... Um, I was coming to the realisation by the time I got in the change rooms that, shit, I'm actually, I'm not with the Waratahs anymore. I'm up in Brisbane. Uh, I'm playing with the Queensland Reds and um, my brother's dead again. So I was going and reliving that again. That was uh, when I should have been ecstatic and crying with tears of joy. I was crying with um, pain and loss again. And the, The boys are walking in the change room just going, fuck, what's going on? Like This guy should be ecstatic and he's... You know, bastard, just over crying, bawling. Must have been traumatic for, um, obviously, not just for yourself, but for the people around you, the support mm. staff who who would have been in the room for you then to watch you go through that. Yeah, yeah, pretty tough to handle. And yeah. knowing what, was. thankfully, Guy Shepherdson had been through something similar when um, Sean uh, Sean McKay passed away over in South Africa, so he could relate to that, and he gave him comfort, which was. Um, I was pretty grateful for too, yeah. Yeah, wow. That's a fuck, you wouldn't wish that on anyone. No for that to have to live Should relive that. That's mate. Yeah. That was heavy. So how did you like did you play again the next week? So the Sunday we're actually flying flying out to South Africa. We're gonna play two games over there. So we went over there, we played against the Lions, beat the Lions over there and then we're actually going to um, Newland Stadium, Cape Town, where the Stormers played. Beautiful part of the world. It was great to be back there. And uh, they were number one. I think they'd won seven games on the trot at that stage. Um, and, you know, it was I think it was 2v1 at that stage. And we went over there and, and we beat them over there. And that was awesome. Uh, you know, we had such a tight-knit group that year. We all went out to the nightclub. You know, it was 26 blokes and it was just 26 red blokes <laughs> just rolling into a nightclub, just, you know, 
just pumped, celebrating a huge win to come over and knock off the you know, Stormers who were top of the table on their home turf and, again, just celebrated the win there, eh? Were you reflecting there that where you you'd sort of where you were again? Nah, you? not so much there, eh? I think um, I may a little bit after the game five, you know, I was staying in a motel room. My mum had come up from Dubbo to come and watch it. So it was nice. That was the first time also that I was um, going overseas again after my brother had passed. So I think, you know, she wanted to be there to see me off there. And then, you know, I'd gone through that again. So she, poor old mum, she'd been on a bit of a roller coaster ride as well. Um, and, you know, but just sitting there reflecting, maybe not so much reflecting, cause, but just relief that I'd had a bit of stability and security for the rest of the season, you know. It's not like I could get an injury next week and I wouldn't know how I was going to get paid. Pay the bills, yeah. Yeah, so that was that was pretty good. Massive but achievement. Yeah, the the one in Cape Town was just more about just being in the moment eh, and just appreciating it. And even now, you know, a lot of those guys still talk about that that actual game. Really? As a turning point for the season to go on to, yeah. to what you eventually did? Yep. Yeah, that belief then, I suppose, yeah, that you could do yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. Yep. You know, shit with a real deal here. Fuck. And then, yeah, you guys went on to, to win a comp. Mm. Um, yeah, go on and win the Super Rugby title, which was unbelievable. Yeah, to go on there, the emotions, um, you know, after that again, I, I didn't get too caught up with emotion after the game there. I don't think it was just like, that's when I was going, fuck, mm. I can stop now and actually... You know, reflect on what a what a roller coaster this last twelve months, or it was longer than twelve months at that stage, but even three years, you know, um, since the two thousand and eight Super Rugby final, what a roller coaster of a ride that was, and sitting there and um, you know at the Normby up there, got my couple of good mates there, having that had come up from Dubbo and Bathurst, and mum and dad and dad's mate and my uncle. Um, yeah, that was a pretty pretty awesome moment there. How good's that? All the toil, all the hard work. Mm, was that yeah. the pinnacle, do you think, or was it playing for the Wallabies? No, I, I would say that is like again we're talking about um, that was that was the pinnacle. You've got something there, and I suppose you do. You know, you've got something in with the Wallabies that no one be able to take away from you. But again, coming back to that that team, like I am now connected with those guys for what we achieved just off that one game. Yeah. Whereas with the Wallabies, not really. You know, the following week we lose to Samoa, and you talked about that. I'd erase most of the memory of the Waratahs. I'd erase most of the memory of the um of the game against Samoa the following week. So I remember watching. Someone had shared something on Facebook where it was, you know, the, the highlights package of that game. <laughs> I, I actually watched it and I sent a message to Rod Davies going, fuck, I'd actually erased how much they actually bashed us. <laughs> Especially you, you poor bastard. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I ha- hadn't given that much thought. But, no, 2011 was was pretty special, you know, as I said, to, especially after that journey to get up there and, do that as a team and, and share that with the entire team. It's an awesome. amazing journey, isn't it? I have a question. We're getting pretty we're pretty close here, just about ra- like getting towards wrapping it up. How does that, hearing what we've heard, yeah, as a bloke who used to live in the kennel and uh, finished school at Stanny's, didn't want to go to uni, have a 
rugby career like what we've heard and then write a book about leadership? Yeah. It's, it's, How does that happen? So, so the, the, the book is probably not so much about leadership. It's about just unlocking the goals to be uh, – the keys, key steps to be successful. So it's not so much about leadership, although I'm writing another book about leadership and whatnot. Um, yeah, it's really interesting because uh, I think there's this perception of probably people listening to this podcast. You know, I've got the country twang, I swear a bit, a bit rough the way I played, got the blonde head, you know, I'm not exactly <laughs> clean cut, but I, I'm not stupid. Um, you know, I, I'd done pretty well at school uh, and... For me, I always, always enjoyed reading. Uh, and I think when you find something that you're passionate about, then you know, you'll get better at that anyway. So I'd never done... Like, I was in the top classes with English, but it definitely wasn't a strength, unlike maths, where I really, really excelled. But people really appreciate when I do write because I write how I speak, but also I'm writing about stuff that I'm passionate about. I think that's... That's the key. Any time you're talking or you know, expressing yourself, something you're passionate about, you know, I can sit there and listen to just about anyone as long as they're passionate. You know, yeah. You, you just you live off their passion. Mm. Or their, and I, you know, I said, I might not be, be interested in what they are talking about, but I, I, I'm thriving off their passion that they have for their particular topic. So when you do that, you're a lot better at expressing yourself. That's awesome. Fuck, that was awesome. Yeah, yeah. That was no, an incredible story, mate. I mean, people, I know I definitely got a shitload out of that. Um, yeah, I can speak for Dan. I know he's got a lot out of it because he's, he's speechless, the big fella. Yeah. Um, mate, it's a it's an amazing story. And I, I, I don't think a lot of people would know that, um, what, you know, what you did go through in your career. Because, I mean, for me, like, when you guys won the comp, I was first year out of school. I mean, um, and you were the, the new guy on the block playing for the Reds and fuck, we're like, this guy's got it fucking sorted, you know, like, but what you, you know, I don't think, yeah, anyone had a... We only got 2011. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> there's a fair bit more up to 2017, I can tell you too. It doesn't get any easier. The story doesn't stop, does it? Oh, no. No, but anyway. And I think, yeah, you, 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 there's been no one more qualified to, to write about success. And the keys to unlocking success because you've learned, you've, you've lived it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, obviously I don't have a, a heap of wallabies caps, you know, I haven't played 100 tests or whatnot. But I see a lot of guys who maybe have played 50 tests who should have 100 or 20 and should have 50. You know, they haven't reached their potential for whatever reason, generally because of to their own self destruction. Whereas I feel as though, you know, I have reached my potential. I've really given it the most. So I talk a lot about, you know, squeezing the lemon. It's not how much lemon, not how much juice you've got in the lemon or how much juice you get out of the lemon. It's ensuring that by the time you finish squeezing, there is nothing left in that lemon. And, uh, you know, I feel as though I've definitely done that. Like I have nothing, had nothing else to give by the time I did finish my career. And, you know, another bloke comes to mind. Like that is Ben Daly. Like that bloke went through so much throughout his career that he was just his body was just wrecked from injury after injury, and that's what I admire in people. Not not what not not what they 
uh, are capable of their potential, but what they actually achieve and reaching their potential. I think uh, you just got to focus on what you're capable of and what you can achieve, as opposed to trying to compete with everyone else. You a sense of fulfilment, <laughs> really, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. You're saying you s- sat in Darren Lockyer's seat. You actually sat in the sound like him as well because <laughs> he said the exact same stuff, mate. He goes, yeah. he goes well, I asked him, who do you look up to? And he goes, and he talk, he goes, you might not have heard of this bloke, but Michael Devere. Oh yeah. Um, you know, he goes, he's not the, he's not, he, you know, represented his state, you know, all this sort of stuff. But he milked every last bit of every last drop out of the yeah. the potential that he had. And Lockie said that that's what he respects the most. And you've just said that if the you exact can same do thing. that out of, especially out of a rugby team or any team, of, you know, a rugby team, you will win the comp every day of the week. <coughs> Because you've just got everyone to play, you know, you've got to have the right cattle. But look at the Reds in 2011, 2012 didn't win, 2013, 2014, 2015, core squad. But it's about making sure that everyone gets the most out of themselves at the same time. Yeah, so that's interesting. And that's that's all you want as a coach too when you're a coach is just getting your blokes to give the most that they can give. There's a lot to be said for team sports, and it's not just about buddy winning, is it? Like it's good. Like it's you just the other lessons you learn are far more important than oh, winning, yeah. right? Yeah. It's about working for each other and yeah, knowing how to uh, knowing how to represent for the for everyone else around you. Thanks, Bo. Epic. Been great. Yeah, really awesome. appreciate your time. Fucking can't wait to get this out there to we'll, the world. <laughs> we'll have to get you back in here to go for 2011, 2019. Yeah, let's do it next time we're up, eh? Life Perfect. after footy. No, well, it's not even life after footy. It's just oh, trying to trying to stay on top. Yeah, right. Yeah, oh. awesome. Cheers, well, guys. To Thanks, be continued. Mate. Cheers. See ya. <laughs> if you're a fan of Trademutt's One Twenty Grit podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Send us a message on Facebook or Instagram, or shoot us an email at admin at trademutt.com.